Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. We're here with Alabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. It's a beautiful day. Uh, we got the rest of our team here in the studio as well. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown. We have Kurt Harding here as well. He's here with our special guests whom we will unveil in a moment. And of course, we have a studio audience of one. Amy Unknown is here. Yeah. <laughs> Amy Unknown. Amy Unleashed. Yeah. <laughs> Amy Uncensored. You have to tune in to the Patreon for that. She's going to tell all of Danny's dark secrets. Oh, I can't wait. We're going to get to our callers in a moment. We'll check in with the Patreon live stream as well. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because, come on, y'all. Advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. We're going to start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call. 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Jess. Hi, my name is Jess and I'm from Sydney, Australia. What do you think is the anatomy of hope? Could it be an idealist trigger for accumulating psychological clutter? Or is psychological clutter perhaps caused by our ego's response to hope, not actually hope itself? I tend to believe that hope is born out of the ego's response to rules and exceptions. And so when we look at a situation that is very unlikely to happen, there is an initial unconscious impulse to logicize and call in the statistics. We seem to have this desire to seek out and become aware of how many of our peers have attempted to do this before us and failed. And we grow increasingly convinced of the circumstantial resources, these unforeseen forces of luck and chance that always seem to be this uncontrollable part of the process in making something happen. So we read the failure stories and our mind implores us to stop there, being that our subconscious mind considers comfort and what is known as synonymous with safety and assurance. At a certain point, it seems that the risk has surpassed its worth. The safety is exceedingly compromised as the unconscious would perceive it, and we become all too aware that if one can fail, the next one can too, and that can be us. I think becoming aware of how many have held a similar dream and lost it along the way is probably one of the most devastating causes behind the buildup of emotional and psychological clutter. It is often a case of why was I so foolish? Why did I hope so much for something different? Versus why was I so fearful? Why didn't I have enough hope? Interestingly, in the book, The Art of Thinking Clearly, Rolf Dabelli talks about something called survivorship bias, where he says that in daily life, because triumph is made more visible than failure, we systematically overestimate our chances of succeeding. Although I understand this as a concept, I think it completely overlooks the role that hope plays in these experiences. So I'd love to get your thoughts on where you find hope in the midst of psychological clutter. And how do you balance hope and pragmatism in a world where they're often pitted against each other? Joining us in the studio to help us answer this question and many other questions on the private podcast is our good friend, Dr. John Deloney. Ladies and gentlemen, John Deloney. 
if I had a pair of panties, I'd throw them at you. Don't worry. <laughs> you can take your hand off my leg under the table. <laughs> my hands are above the table. Video proves it. Dr. J. So, John, I want to talk to you about this because I think Ryan, TK, and I all have a sort of different understanding of hope. And I want to kill a sacred cow here. Kill it. I think what happens quite often is there are two types of hope. There's one kind of hope that is really just an expectation that's dressed up in a tuxedo. Mm -hmm. Oh, I really hope I win this championship. I really hope this person gives me their phone number. I really hope I win this game. I really hope I make this amount of money. I really hope I get this promotion. I hope I get the things, the material possessions that make me happy. I hope I get the status. I hope I get the friends. I hope I get the career. Whatever it is, these are just expectations, right? Mm -hmm. And we think as though they're going to complete us or make us more full, more satisfied, fulfilled, but the opposite often happens. And so I think there's a bit of psychological clutter here that is often created by that kind of hope. Now, there's another kind of hope. Uh, Desmond Tutu, I wrote this down. He said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. Now, that kind of hope is like an optimism, a hopefulness, right? And so when people hear me talk about hope and say, it's not maybe it's not as virtuous as we always hold it up in this light as though it's always good, it's always helpful, it is always this beacon of light. Maybe sometimes it is when you see that there is a lot of darkness and yet there is some light there. However, sometimes hope creates this psychological clutter. When we have so many hopes as Jess illuminates here, all of a sudden we have this yeah, there's a psychological clutter that sort of exists at the intersection of, of mental clutter and emotional clutter. And on your show, The John Deloney Show, which we'll link to in the show notes, you talk to a lot of people about anxiety. And I think a lot of our anxieties actually have to do with these expectations that we're, we're renaming hope. Mm. I, I consider the, there to be a stark difference between a wish and hope. And wish is, uh, that's what you were talking about earlier with expectations. Mm -hmm. And they're ungrounded, they're unfounded. There's no, there's no, everything's attached to it, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, I like the idea of hope, as, as Desmond says, it's a path forward, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, we're heading towards a thing. Um, and, and yeah, those are radically different constructs. Because when you have a path, there's usually some confidence. You usually, you, you've, you've been with somebody or you have taken steps towards a thing versus I'm just sitting here hoping to be fulfilled externally, right? Yeah. Well, that's mm -hmm. another quote that I had written down from Arthur Miller. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hope is, uh, it's almost like hope based off of impulse becomes a wish. I mean, I'm, I guess certainly there are impulsive hopes that might be something that gives you that light. But yeah, it seems like the hope that you're talking about is based off of this um, impulsive desire. We want something right now. Yeah. Interesting. It's, this is the first time I've heard you talk about hope. And I wasn't like, oh, I got to throw something in there. <laughs> like it's, I, I really like how you described it. So do you, do you, do you not like hope? It's not, I don't like or dislike. I think of it like material possessions. People often think like, Ryan, TK, and I are against material possessions. Mm. Right. And then so when I start to talk about hope, one might, intuit from that, that I dislike hope. No, 
I think hope can be really useful for someone. Being hopeful, being optimistic, not blindly optimistic, though, not blindly hopeful, but quite often, just like our material possessions can get in the way of our space, and they can also create mental and emotional clutter. I think hope can often do the same thing. Hoping for all of these externalities Mm. to happen, it's a type of consumerism. Consumerism is saying, hey, if I get that thing, it's going to make me happy or make me complete. Well, the same thing is true with hope. In fact, Mm. isn't that a type of hope in a way? It is a wish, as you call it. And we often use these terms synonymously, right? And so when I say wish or I say hope, we often mean the same thing. I hope I get that which is fine. But if I'm going to make myself miserable until I get it, mm-hmm. well, that's psychological clutter. Yeah. And it can become a numbing device, right? And mm-hmm. um, it can be a way of pausing your day by sitting there and just wishing I had and wishing I had and wishing I had. Um, what I want us to guard against is Amos Tversky, um, a famous psychologist says, and I'll, I'll, I'll butcher the quote up, but he said, being pessimistic is a waste of time because if it comes true, it's happened twice. Mm. Once when you imagined mm. it and meditated on it and once when it actually happened. So why not spend your energy hoping for, why not spend your energy um, pouring into the best possible outcome mm. and, and heading that way? And I think when you, again, it, for me, it's about momentum and it's about movement instead of just sitting there trying to accumulate, right? Yeah. Um, one of those becomes an anchor. Yeah, I mean, it's a tool, right? That's what hope is. And we have to be careful how we use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar to faith. If we think about faith as the willingness to bet on something or someone, Mm. or as the willingness to act in accordance with what we say we believe, it's like, is faith good or bad? Mm. Well, it kind of depends. Who Mm. or what are you placing your faith in? Mm. Who or what are you trusting in? And there are some people you can trust, some processes you can trust that will really damage you and hurt you. Mm. That doesn't mean trust is bad. It just means we can't hide behind these concepts. We can't hide behind advice and say, oh, I found a neat little concept. I found a cool little word, a cool little maxim, and I don't have to think critically anymore. Mm -hmm. I can just sort of hide behind that. No, trust, hope, faith, love, all these things can destroy you if you channel those energies in the wrong direction or if you have as the object of your hope or your Mm -hmm. faith something that is not worthy of it. But all of these things can be tremendously life-giving as well depending on how you direct those energies or in whom you place that trust. Mm. Yeah. That's the anatomy of hope, I guess. <laughs> Podcast over. Great job, TK. <laughs> so I guess going back to her question, what is the anatomy of hope? Mm. Like if you can, if you look at it geometrically, what does that, what does that look like? Mm, yeah. Yeah. It depends on what kind of hope you're talking about, right? If, if you're talking about, the the freedom that you experience, to me, it doesn't require hope. And that's, when someone asks a question like this, it almost presupposes that one must have hope in order to fill in the blank, succeed, be happy, whatever it might be. Mm. But I can tell you, many of the things that I've accomplished throughout my life, all of my so-called most impressive accomplishments are never things that I hoped would happen. They were a byproduct of doing something that didn't actually require hope. Mm-hmm. When I write every day, I sit down in the chair, put words on the page, there's not a outcome necessarily in mind, mm-hmm. right? And even if there is an outcome in mind, an arrival point, I don't have to hope that I get there. When I drove from Ojai down to LA, 
I don't hope that I make it there. I just simply draw, and hope isn't part of that process mm. at all for me. But I am hopeful as I do it. Right. And I think that's the distinction I like to make. If I mm. if I have to in, if I have to inject hope, it's sort of the opposite of what you were saying, right? Mm. But yes, being pessimistic, I'm I'm not pessimistic at all. In fact, I'm often accused of being overly optimistic. But it, yes, I think with hope, it's the same thing. Mm. Being hopeful right now is not required for me to get to my destination. Mm-mm. That's interesting because no one would look at someone who's like, has hope all the time and be like, that's a really hopeful person. It almost sounds like an insult or um, like you would feel sorry for that person. Like, Oh, interesting. Yeah. But yeah. you would look at someone and be like, that's a really optimistic person. Yeah. So um, there was a, a monk that I credit with uh, really being... Um, important saving my life a decade ago. And he was a bioethics professor. And then at the end of the semester, he'd head off to the monastery and be gone until school started again. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day we were having lunch and he told me, John, pessimism and sarcasm are the wisdom of this age. And they so often present as wisdom and joy and hope and optimism so often present as nonsense as mm-hmm. the idiot, right? Mm. And he said, never forget that those are, the, that, that's just an ethos and you can, over time, change your default setting to one of optimism, one of, one of, okay, here's all the challenges, let's go get it, versus here's all the challenges, let's shut it down. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that's the, getting back to the Desmond Tutu quote, like, if there are a bunch of challenges there, that's where hope is a useful tool, mm-hmm. right? It's saying, yes, I know I can get to the other side of these challenges that are in front of me or someone who is in tremendous debt or having mental health issues, as we'll talk about later today. No matter where you are, if you have challenges in front of you, maybe it is that kernel of hope that allows you to realize like, oh, this is something I can either get through, get around, bypass, or let go of altogether. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, man, it's not using hope as Xanax. It's Mm. just sitting there, not not willing yeah. to do anything and engage and just say, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also important to note, sometimes those in our community are the light switch, right? Um, I can spend time with you and I can see hope that, oh, I can do better when it comes to this stuff. Or I can spend time with Ryan and think, I don't want my marriage to look anything like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, but you can be around other people and they are hope because yeah. they they are the path. You can see them and go, okay, that's an example of what this looks like for me. Yeah. 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 They're shining the light for you, which gives you that intrinsic sense of hope. You're not you're not relying on them for no. hope. You're witnessing them. I, I you're have a seeing... picture of it now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, well, speaking of hope and tying that into anxiety really quickly, um, you talked to me privately off, off mic, but I'm going to drag it here Uh-oh. on mic. <laughs> so you just finished writing a new book that comes out in October. It's yep. called, what, what's it called? Building a Non-Anxious Life. Okay. And going through this, you also realized you had to go rent a hotel room to finish the book. And then when you got home, you said, oh, wait, there's a lot of anxiety in my own life and it has a lot to do with my material possessions. Yeah, so I I started with a, a couple of premise. One is, um, and again, I'm considering myself a mental health professional. That's what I do. And that's my community. And more people than ever before are medicated. More people than ever before are under the care of a professional. And the depression and anxiety rates continue to skyrocket. Mm. And I remember thinking when, when they discovered penicillin, death from infection fell off a map, right? 
And so what we're doing might be an adjunct, might be helping, but we're not solving this problem. We got to look at some of these things at a deeper level. So that's where I started with the premise. And I went down a rabbit hole to try to figure this out. And uh, as we were talking last night, I couldn't deny the, the literature and just my own life about anxiety and stuff and having bodies designed for scarcity, suddenly surrounded by all this junk. And even if it's quote unquote, good junk Mm -hmm. and I can't breathe. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by all this debt and all of this um, hurt that we're absorbing through the news all the time. We're just not designed for it. And what I found myself, which is unique for me, because I consider myself a problem solver and let's go. I didn't have a map out. And I remember leaving my family. I've got two young kids and my wife and uh, we live out in the woods. And I went and checked into a hotel for a week and said, I got to write my way out of this. I didn't know what to do. Um, In fact, I even even thought about calling you guys, (laughs) being like, hey, I need some help here. But I didn't have a path out. And it was, I thought I was out of the matrix and I realized, oh no, I was just in a different version of the matrix. And the only way to unplug from this thing is to get completely out. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because what we often think we should get, the object of our desire quickly becomes the object of our misery. And we start to feel hopeless when we get all of the things and it didn't do what we thought it would do. And you just spin faster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because uh, we do a home tour every week on Patreon for our video podcast subscribers. And a few weeks ago, I posted a photo of where I live. And I just, I was literally walking through the house, snapped a photo real quick because I knew I needed to post it up, something up on Patreon. And it was, and it's aggressively simple, but Mm -hmm. I didn't like tidy up or anything. It's rather brutalist. It's stark, right? I'm not prescribing that to anyone, mm-hmm. but I remember the first comment was, yeah, like anyone lives like that. <laughs> I was like, well, wait a minute, but that's exactly how I live. Right, They're yeah. like, where are you hiding all of your stuff? I'm like, I got rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> and my actual response was, if it was on social media, I would just ignore it, but it was one of our patrons. Mm. And my response was, you don't have to hide your stuff if you get it out of the way. Right. I don't think the stuff is bad or wrong or evil, but if mm. it's creating this underlying anxiety, mm. ultimately what happens is that anxiety, just like if you were to hear sirens going by constantly, that's going to create anxiety within you. Loud noises, visual clutter creates this internal clutter in our lives. Mm. And what was the best way for me to get on the other side of that was to subtract anything that was actually covering up the path for me. Mm. So, um, and I didn't write about this. This is the first time I've talked about this publicly. My, my wife, um, one day I was down in the gym, this is over Christmas and we have a little gym in our, our basement and I'm exercising down there and she heard me cheering and I'd gotten a text message. This was over a holiday break that I'd landed a speaking gig that I really wanted. Mm. And the guy who runs all that for me, he had texted in and said, hey, and I think we got you another one. And I was cheering. So she comes down and says, what are you so excited about? And I was like, I got this. And then I got this. And as she retells this, she said, I literally was watching my husband die in front of me. And then I hear him cheering that he got more work. Mm. And her, her normal, she withdraws, right? So when she gets upset or gets anxious, her normal move is to just pull back and then we reconvene. And this time she didn't and she stepped forward in a way that kind of caught me off guard. And I'll never forget this as long as I live because it was unmooring. She said, the pie chart that is how much I love you and the pie piece that is how much money you make is full. 
anything that you go get beyond this is not for me and it's not for the kids. It's for your ego. Mm. And she said, so from this point forward, go do whatever you want to do, but do not make the mistake of thinking it's for us. And then she said this, John, we have enough. And then she walked out. Mm. And I remember thinking, I don't have a psychology for the word enough. Mm. I, don't, I didn't know where to go. And I took the jobs. I took both of them because mm. I, didn't, I, didn't I didn't have another path. And now I'm on this, like I'm literally in real time. What does enough mean? What does yeah. enough mean? Because I got one set of part of my brain being screamed at. If you don't have this, if you don't have this, literally the world's coming down. Money's going to go away. The economy, this is, democracy's running around. So you got this. Hmm. And on the other side, I've got a body designed for scarcity. It's like, I can't handle it. And it's like my body declared civil war on itself. Hmm. And I, it, it's, uh, it's, what is enough? What is enough? Right. I, I, before we even unpack the enough part, I just got to shine a spotlight on this and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is what greatness looks like. Yes. This is what greatness looks like. This is why you're great at what you do. Amen. I think about that infamous moment. We're in the middle of a game. Jordan does a move on Kobe. And when there's kind of like a break and play, Kobe goes up to Mike, gets next to him and says, how did you do that? And I thought that's what greatness looks like because he's not saving face in this moment. He's being a humble student of the game and mm -hmm. saying, hey, I, I don't really know something. Can you, can I just put off the competitive mask for a second and have you teach me and what you're doing? I always say that a teacher is just a lead learner. They are there to model for their students what it looks like to learn. And I think being a mental health practitioner, you got to be your first client mm -hmm. in order to be good at helping other people and to see you process in real time, to see you wrestle with your own vulnerabilities and to say, look, I don't always have to look like I know the answer to everything. That's why you're so freaking great, man, <laughs> at giving people perspective. This right here. Don't well, make this head any bigger. Come on. <laughs> this is this magic. It's, it's, it's a huge head. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in that same vein, I want to point out like how you're modeling um, a good relationship, man. The fact that like you and your wife can have interactions like that mm. and uh, become stronger from it. And there's yeah not like a, a defense that comes up and um, you really consider what she's saying. It's the same thing. Um, like when my wife comes to me and says something, uh, that, you know, a boundary that I've crossed or that she hasn't expressed, you know, my first, my, the old Ryan Nicodemus, my first reaction would have been like, oh, well, this is why you shouldn't have that boundary. Cause here's why you shouldn't feel that way. Mm. And now it's, um, it's very much like, yeah, like I, I know that this woman loves me. I know that we're good for each other. Um, it's it's like if Josh came to me and said something, it's like, mm -hmm. I know that Josh isn't coming at me with something that um, is an insult or, you know, he's just, you know, out of his mind. It's more about like, hey, here's something I've observed that that might help you. And it's, I think in romantic relationships, it's harder to take it sometimes, uh, when uh, to take advice like that sometimes. So yeah, awesome, mm -hmm. like modeling an amazing relationship too. I don't know how your wife puts up with you, but that's, that's awesome, man. When, <laughs> she's pretty, she's pretty incredible, man. She's pretty incredible. When you got off the elevator today, we, we went to a dinner together last night. I don't know how many people were there, 70, 80, hundred people. And, um, we're, we're there. And then you got off the elevator this morning. You said, when, when did you leave last night? I don't know if you remember what I said, but I said, when I had enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, when I had enough was like, what is enough for me is different for Ryan and TK were still there because mm -hmm. they hadn't had enough for them enough, yet, right? Enough wine. I, I still needed like two more glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when they brought the disco ball out, TK That's was right. the first one on the floor. Man. <laughs> well, my, my problem 
used to be that everyone else is enough. I then prescribed that to me. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone else is working this uh, these many hours or they're aspiring to be a C-level executive. That must be enough for me because it's enough for that person. Mm. Not even A, knowing whether or not it actually is enough for them. Mm. They haven't stopped to ask that question, what is enough either, right? But also, I didn't stop to ask that question. What is enough money? What is enough time? What is enough accomplishments? What is enough mm. Twitter followers? What is enough friendships? What is uh, what is enough in my mm. life? And when I didn't ask that question, more was always the answer. Always. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's our culture's default yeah. narrative, which is yeah. more. Add, add, add. Um, I, I, and I guess there's a, there's a humbling part that I can't believe I've made it this far in my life. And I, without stopping to spend a considerable amount of time, um, both personally, spiritually, psychologically with my wife, what is enough? Mm. Cause if you don't, man, that machine just, it, I mean, it just, the arrow on the, on the treadmill, just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. Mm-hmm. And in this, in this world that we're at, there's, it's, it's, the answer is never, yeah. there's never enough. There's Man. always somebody that wants a piece. And I can't believe I spent this much time trying to talk about mental health and and without pondering that question very deeply. Yeah. Listen, some of that is is not so much a shortcoming in you. Some of that is just evidence of the of a great marriage playing the role that it's designed to play. Correct. It's a mirror yeah. of accountability, right. right? Because we have our own narratives where Sometimes our concept of enough is based on the assumptions about what other people expect mm-hmm. of us. It's kind of like in Breaking Bad where he's made all these sacrifices, kind of ruined his life, looks at his wife and says, I did it all for you. And she says, I never asked you for any of this. Mm-hmm. And it's like light bulb on. You mean I was living out this narrative based mm-hmm. on what I assume you expected of me? Yeah. Thank you for that gift. Right. right. Yeah. And, and sometimes we do that. And I think what a wonderful gift your wife gave you when she says, we have enough. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it sets you free from any story you can tell yourself about, well, my wife wants this, my wife needs that, my family needs that. Like, no, nah, man, she just gave you an, a really amazing gift. Mm-hmm. And so we, and we, when we have those moments, we can say, ah, why didn't I know that earlier? Or it's like, thank God I know it now. Thank, thank God I know it now. Yeah. Yeah. And that freedom can be untethering, right? Yeah. When someone just cuts that balloon string, Man, there's some there's some floating around <laughs> yet that happens before you kind of reground. But yeah, it's, good. it's difficult when it keeps falling in your lap too, man. Like mm-hmm. when you um you have enough, but people are trying to give you more work in mm-hmm. this case. I mean, yeah, of course the default mode is yeah, I better take the shop. Because, you know, writers and like what we do, there is no salary. It's like, you know, you, mm-hmm. you kind of gotta take which which you can get when mm-hmm. while you can get it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's difficult to turn that stuff down. So let's get practical real quick before we wrap this up. You said you're feeling stressed out about your stuff. Specifically, that, that that's what you were saying off camera. Yeah, about how- so um, I sat down in my in my basement. I've got a little writing room down there, mm-hmm. and I got all my guitars on the wall, and it all there's several, which is <laughs> insane. Um, I how many tw- of those I, do you play at once? Twice a year, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've got books. Um, I'm I'm a former academic. My wife was Dr. Deloney long before I was, mm-hmm. and so we've got books everywhere. And it was funny. I started pulling them apart and I literally channeled you too. I was like, how would we do this? <laughs> and guys, I, I, I hung my head in shame because I was like, an educated mental health guy has to have these on this shelf. Mm. And I will read these. And then there was like, no, you won't. You've got 10 more in the Amazon box on the front porch. Mm. And it was this, oh, my identity is just woven through this yeah. library. And that was a... 
I need to sit down and get some, I need, I, I, I'm entered into a space that I'm tempted to call a character issue. I don't think it's that. I need some skills. I need a, a set of skills. I need a, a, a roadmap to follow here because yeah. what I'm going to do is I'm going to get rid of a bunch of junk and then I'm going to buy it all back because I won't yeah. have dealt with the issue. I think that's ultimately what happens quite often. That's why you don't hear the minimalists do, here are the 67 ways to declutter your bookshelf. Because yeah, I can show you how to get rid of all your books. In fact, I can go in your house and steal all your books and now you're bookless, <laughs> but you just reclutter the the space. I used to own 2,000 books, mm-hmm. some of which I'd actually read. Uh, most of which I hadn't, but I held on to them because they made me look really smart when people came over. Look at all these books that he hopes to read someday, right? right. right? <laughs> and and so that type of hope was actually getting in the way for me because it was like my identity gets so tied up in these things. So a few rules, boundaries, we really call them that we set up a few years ago. We have this uh, free ebook that people who listen to this, they can download. It's called The Minimalist Rule Book: 16 Rules for Living with Less. It's just at theminimalists.com. Just click on our resources page. There are a bunch of free resources you can download, mm-hmm. including the Minimalist Rulebook. But a couple that I really find useful in a scenario like this is the spontaneous combustion rule. You can pull out any item. So you grab, look at all of your books at once as mm-hmm. one item for a second. If they all spontaneously combusted, would you replace all of them? And if the answer to that is no, then okay, that's a sign. Mm-hmm. But if the answer is yes, that's okay. That means, okay, I'm going to get some sort of value from them hypothetically, right? Or would I feel a sense of relief if they spontaneously Dude, I'd feel it? so good, man. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. is the sign. If I would feel good, then it's obviously yeah. clutter, not just physical clutter, but it's that mm-hmm. mental, emotional, mm-hmm. psychological clutter that we've been talking about. The other one, we hold on to a lot of books. Why? Just in case. Mm-hmm three most dangerous words in the English language. And because it ju- allows us to justify holding on to anything, holding Everything. on to toxic relationships, holding on to a career that w- is not fulfilling us and holding on to the stuff and the status and the identity that we're holding on to. And so what Ryan and I came up with over a decade ago was the just in case rule. Anything that I'm holding on to physical, I can let go of it if I'm holding on to it just in case mm-hmm. because I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from wherever I am. Mm-hmm. Now, first, it's like, that's an incredible rule of privilege. You have to spend $20 every single time. You No, you never have to use it. Right, right. Things <laughs> you're holding on to just in case you never end up using. You never using. use, right. And it allows you to get rid of tens of thousands of just in case items that are causing it, clogging up. They're creating all of that internal clutter. Mm-hmm starting with the physical clutter. Yeah. Real quick, like when it, when it comes to your stuff stressing you out, are you stressed out because you're thinking about how Josh and I would judge you if we were over in your study or like, like what's stressing you out about it? Um, and guys, I, I just lost his name. Um, he's a Japanese minimalist. Um, just lost, just lost his name. Don Madsen, um, who's the, goes by the minimal mom. She, she put me on to him and he, had this conversation where he says every inanimate object in your house is having a conversation with you, whether you know it or not. And at first I was like, I don't care. Sounds all hokey. And then I realized my guitars are always saying, or are you just done playing music? Is that who you are now? Are you, or my books are like, are you going to be stupid forever? And my, I've got clothes in my closet. They're like, wow. Remember when you used to exercise and you were actually in shape? Are you just going to be fat dad now? Is that, is that where we're headed? And then I've got other clothes, like everything in my, the dishes in the sink are like, Oh, you're going to be that husband that just hates his wife? You're going to be that guy? After in a, a weird hard, way, you're hoarding hope. It never, <laughs> but it's, it's this, 
what I, what I, it was this light bulb that came on. I'm having 10,000 conversations at the same time. Mm. The, the woodworking stuff is like, oh, you're, you're never going to build that treehouse for your son, are you? And he's going to go to college and you're going to, sure, son, we'll get to it. Cats in the cradle. It never stops. And so mm. it's really almost pathologically, almost like Sybil. I'm trying to shut the voices up. Yeah. And at some point I can't compete. I've got to hand some of this stuff out. Right, because it won't and, stop. And yeah. if it were to spontaneously combust, it would be all peace. Of a sudden, the voices stop. Yes, the oh, voices wow. stop as well. Yeah. Let's get to a few more mm. questions here. Our next question is from Kate. My name's Kate from London, and I'm a grateful Patreon subscriber. I want to start by prefacing I'm not suicidal as I record this. That said, I experience chronic pain every day, and this prolonged and continuous experience of physical pain leads me to ask, is a life with more frequent levels of pain than not worth living? For me, living a meaningful life is sometimes blocked by suffering with that pain. And that can leave me cynical about the purpose of being alive. First off, for anyone listening to this, if you are thinking about suicide, I, th- I, I want to talk about this because I think it's really an important topic. And quite often we're afraid to talk about it because we think as human beings, that we're the only one contemplating these thoughts. Although most healthy adults that I know have at least thought of what it's going to be like for them to be gone from this world, or they've been in such a dark place for a prolonged period of time, they feel like maybe death is the only answer. And so real quick, if you are thinking about suicide, the suicide hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, uh, Professor Sean also told me, I guess you can di- just dial 988 from mm. any phone now mm. to get the suicide hotline or even text that mm. line as well. So I just want to get that out of the way really quickly. But I too have gone through tremendous chronic pain over the last five years, especially 2019 was sort of the nadir of my mm. adult life. It was just tremendous pain to where I'd wake up and I don't know how I'm going to get through the next second sort of pain. But even after that, as it subsided a bit, it's still pain every day. And so you begin to think like, is this worth it? And you're not wrong or bad for thinking thoughts like this. It doesn't make you an evil person. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. If you're in physical pain, that is a natural um, response. Now, suffering is sort of the inability to let go of pain. We usually create suffering in our lives, not through physical pain, Mm. but through the mental, psychological clutter, the stories that we clutter our life, that we tell ourselves, oh, I can't believe I did this, or I should have done this differently when I was at that party, or I should have said this, or, oh, why was I such an idiot yesterday? Mm. That's suffering. We're creating our own suffering. However, Dr. Deloney, there is another layer of suffering when it is attached to physical pain as well. Yeah, that chronic pain is, is um, it's a demon, man. And it, I had a great professor once suggest that to stop looking at suicide as the problem. And if you are in deep agonizing pain, suicide is the solution. And so you've got to begin to work upstream if you're going to help somebody in that, in that moment. So I, I echo you, man. I, I applaud that. That there's no, there's nothing wrong with you if you are looking at ways to stop hurting. Right? That makes sense. And the question then becomes, and I, I'll defer to you when it comes to chronic pain because it's something I can talk, I can wax eloquently about. But you've experienced it, and I don't want to take that story from you. 
on this side of it, sitting with people who have hurt, they've lost somebody deeply, they've lost a child, something just brutal, or they're experiencing deep pain. It's always what is the meaning to be made from this pain, right? And that seems to be the turn. But again, having never experienced it, does that sound like something you stitch into a pillow or is that is that really where the answer is? That's a great question. I, I think it has something to do with one's ability to bear the unbearable mm-hmm. shows you that it's actually possible to bear the unbearable. And with some level of nobility, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, without the the woe is me, because it's hard to not constantly think about myself when I'm in pain. The most selfish and self-pity that I ever have experienced is when I'm in extreme physical pain. Right. Right. And that's what pain's, that's what it's designed to do. It's a signal to get you to think about yourself, right? Yeah. Yes. That's its job. Yeah. And w- when it's acute, that's, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. You want to like, oh man, I, I ha- cut my arm open or whatever. I need to pay attention to this. Correct. However, when we go through chronic pain, it's me constantly neurosing over what is wrong. Right. right? And I think one of the things I realized that there's, it's not wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. It's just really uncomfortable. It's painful. And because something is painful doesn't mean it's bad. Because you're suffering, that also doesn't mean that it's bad. You wouldn't know the joys or I wouldn't know the joys of life without the suffering. So can Mm. I ask you one more question about it? Of course. At some point, you made a choice to not let this become an identity. Mm. And when you don't let something become an identity, you then seek a path out. And so you're the person who... Uh, taught me about grounding. The last time I, I visited, you were handing me books and stuff and you were like proselytizing, this will, this is help. But you went on a mission not to be defined by this. And that to me feels like the path out of any kind of hurt and pain. Um, cancer, like I survived cancer, but I'm not going to be a cancer survivor forever. That's not going to be the identity I tattoo on, right. on my chest. I, yeah. I, I lost a child. I'm not going to let loss define me. I suffer from chronic pain. I'm going to enter into a season of of grief and I wanted my life to be like this, but now it's like this and I'm headed out of this sucker and I'm going to come hell or high water. I'm, I'm, I'm in to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of identity. What set you on that track? Yeah. Because when you look around, we have a culture that says, you're the worst thing that ever happened to you, man. Sit down park it, we're going to send you checks and we're going to send you casseroles mm. and you're, you're, what you're, your input is over and you chose another path. Mm. But being the victim never felt empowering to me, even though I often felt like the victim of something, right? Mm. But the way to sort of reverse that was to understand that it is my, responsib- my responsibility to A, deal with this pain mm. in the moment, but also to find a way out of it. No one else is going to do it for me. Mm-hmm. There's no prescription that is going to work, both literal prescriptions from the doctor, which may help with some temporary relief, but mm-hmm. it's not going to get to the underlying symptoms. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was much more about reconnecting with my human nature. And I realized that a lot of the pain that I was experiencing was exacerbated by these unnatural lives that we are living mm-hmm. now. I mean, the intense glowing screens that we that permeate our everyday lives, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Wi-Fi, dirty electricity, uh, a lack of connecting with the earth. You mentioned mm-hmm. grounding, and the you know we we had Clint Ober on the podcast, one of our most popular episodes ever uh, from Earthing.com, and. Grounding's free. You can go out and stand in the grass and it costs you nothing. Now, Mm -hmm. 
ideally, I want to ground 80 to 90% of the day because it really helps with my chronic pain, with my inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so it's finding ways to reconnect with the species-specific way of living (laughs) because we are not living like human beings, right? We're living like people, societally driven people. Mm -hmm. And anytime that I start living like society, it often causes more pain in my own life. Mm. And so how do I get away from that? And these questions are so highly individual. Mm-hmm. It was about eliminating all the blue light and, mm-hmm. uh, and seeing the sunrise first thing in the morning, reconnecting with cold and mm-hmm. grounding and spending time in the sun every single day. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not doing these things, we're, we're just, we're stuck inside. We've created our own little prison. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful prison with like really nice artwork, but it's still, <laughs> it's still it's prison. A prison. Yeah. No, that's a, yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy. So when I hear Kate's question, it makes me think of like, how do you support someone like Kate? So with Josh and his chronic pain, he would, um, yeah, I could tell he was in pain. Hey, how are you feeling? I'm in a lot of pain today. I'd say, I'm sorry. And he's like, please don't tell me that you're like, I don't need, I don't need you to feel sorry for mm-hmm. me. And he wasn't saying it negatively as much as he didn't want to feel like a victim. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I was, you know, giving my, uh, you know, my apology or, you know, my, whatever my heart felt like, Hey man, hope it gets better. Don't hope for me, he would say. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I actually learned that from from our friend, Pastor Erwin McManus, Mm, when he was going through stage four cancer, Mm. people would come up to him and say, hey, how you doing? He would say, you don't get to ask me that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that was setting a boundary because A, he didn't want to lie to them. It's not the George Carlin thing, right? He's like, tell everyone you're doing great because it makes your friends happy and it pisses Uh off your enemies. Right. Right. Well, with me, it was like, I didn't want to lie and be like, I'm doing fine. Thanks. I don't want to do that to Ryan. I love Um, him too much. So I'm going to be brutally honest with him. And so the boundary I had to set up, and I especially set this up with my wife. You you seem like you're feeling better today. And it's like, I have to remind her like, hey, I don't want to talk about it because it makes me then tune back into my own suffering. So since we have an expert here, like how do you, you know, how do you support someone who is talking about the amount of pain that they're in? Like if you're having a one-on-one with someone, like how, how would you... Two, two important things. One, I think we have become so uncomfortable with the power of our presence that we try to bridge that discomfort with just words. Yeah. And we just talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, one of the greatest moments somebody ever gave me was in a moment of significant loss. They came and sat with me. He's an old rancher with a cowboy hat, the whole nine, the whole West Texas nine yards. And over the course of an hour and a half, he said no words. And then when the doctor came out and said, here's the deal. And I looked over and he was weeping tears that I wasn't able to cry yet. And he he said nothing. Mm -hmm. And that was the closest, that was, that was it. So that's number one. Number two, we're also often expecting ourselves to be mind readers. Like ask your good friend, Hey, what's the best way I can love you right now? Mm -hmm. And be like, ask me no questions. Done. Right. What's the best way I can love you right now? And if we can just engage somebody like that and not have to be experts on everybody and not have to be mind readers and just open it up and let them tell us. And he may say, it's going to change. But right now, here's what I need. Just give people the gift of telling you what they need. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm taking my hands off the, off the wheel, man. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Right. What I love about that is it's not the, what's the best way I can help. 
Mm-hmm. You sent me a great video this week <laughs> of toxic help. We often talk about the problem with the helper. The helper is one of the most dangerous people in the world because they will like tear the, an eagle out of the sky to keep him from falling, right? <laughs> they use dolphin. other people to make themselves feel better. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and the woman in the video was like at this checkout line and, and I'll let you tell it. Oh man, oh my God. <laughs> Without using are the same of, language. Are we out of time? <laughs> no, there, it was like in you know a self-checkout line and the video just starts with this woman cussing out this guy. And he's like, um, you know, I'm sorry you're mad at me right now. And she was like, I'm trying to help you. And he was like, I don't need your help. She's like, oh, yes, you do. <sighs> and she started to go on. Um, you need Jesus Christ in your life. And like, just like throw <laughs> hurling at him, that, you know, whatever she thinks that he needs because it's worked for her. Uh, and for whatever reason, she was hurling it at him. But it was just a very vulgar scene of this woman <laughs> who, I, I mean, she was clearly a little upset, maybe a little crazy. Uh-huh. But I think there actually was probably a little bit of good intention there. Yeah. But it was just, it just created like the most chaos. I'll send it to you on, on Instagram. Okay. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so your question, how can I love you today, is another way of saying, how can I support you? How can I see you? How can I witness you? How can I bear witness as opposed to how can I? fix you. It's sometimes mm. the greatest way I can love somebody. Like when I ask my wife that question, how can I love you today? Like, go away. Yeah. Like, well, love from a distance. Yeah. Walk, like go, go to work and leave me alone. <laughs> 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 Let's answer a question here from Jen. My name is Jen. I'm from the Pittsburgh area. Uh, I was calling in because I wanted to bring some awareness to other families, uh, special needs families in particular that may not be able to participate um, in family vacations over the summer and throughout the year, really. Uh, Recently, we had a situation come up with one uh, part of our family where we were completely left out of the vacation planning. Um, Everybody else in our family was basically able to go and invited to go except for us. Um, The main reason that came up was because they didn't believe that we were going to be able to get uh, my daughter on a plane because, uh, I guess they're afraid it might be a stressful situation. My daughter has never had a chance to ride on a plane. She's never been in an airport. So, um, while this could be somewhat of a stressful situation for her, um, she hasn't even had the chance to prove whether it would be or not. Um, so because of that, uh, we were basically completely left out of a vacation and, um, Despite all of the past conversations that we've had with our families about how isolating regular everyday activities and planning and playdates and things like that can be, uh, the fact that our family had deliberately left us out of a vacation without even asking if we would want to be a part of it was really, really hurtful. Um, We were having a lot of trouble kind of seeing our way past this because, you know, your family is supposed to be the most supportive people in your life and in your children's life growing up. However, uh, this most recent situation has kind of left us at a loss of, you know, who can we really trust and rely on to keep us included, keep my daughter feeling included and always make sure that, you know, we're together as much as we possibly can be. Um, I feel like there's no understanding and very little trust left um, so we're really just struggling, looking for some clarity and a way to find peace so that we can move on with our family and um, keep them a part of our lives. John, there's a, there's a struggle here. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really rough because we often desire the desire of others, as our friend Peter Rollins would talk about, right? Uh, I think it's a Schopenhauer quote, but when we, we don't actually get to desire our own desires, but here's an observation I've learned in my own life, whether it's with material possessions or with relationships, or I want someone to react a particular way to me. I want you to be impressed or I want you to include me. These are desires that are legitimate desires, but every new desire is like a new bar to my own prison cell mm-hmm. in a way. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have desires. I certainly have desires, right? A couple episodes ago, we talked about Anthony DeMello and when he talks about the two different types of desires within sort of Buddhist philosophy. And one of these desires is I'm going to be upset if I don't get it. And that's really where Jen is here. Those family members, even if they're trying to upset you, which I don't think is the case, Mm. even if they're trying to upset you, you still get to determine whether or not they upset you. Mm. Um, There's nothing harder than looking at our loved ones and realizing they have opted out of relationship with us. And you have to enter into a season of grief. Otherwise, you are choosing to let those shoulds and those desires bury you. Right. And I think entering into grief is letting go of what I hoped would happen, what I wanted to happen, and just accepting this is what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that from that ash is where you build what comes next, which is we feel like we've lost trust. You have. Mm -hmm. We feel like they've just abandoned us. They did. Mm -hmm. And you've got to sit there and it's the worst and it's uncomfortable and it's lonely. And it's from that ash that the soil is, is fertile. So you can start. You're going to have to find a gang, people mm-hmm. that aren't afraid to try. You're going to have to get a community and a tribe that is not one that um, you're attached to by blood, but that you choose, right? That's the that's the work ahead of you. And so be it. Yeah. Mm. I'm a big advocate of just that, that one last punch you want to throw <laughs> in, in case you have a puncher's chance of getting a knockout, even though you've gotten clubbed many different times in the match and you're you're on your heels. So I don't believe you you need to fight forever. But here's one thing, if you haven't already done, I might try to say. I might say to the family, hey, it is what it is, but I do want it on the record. I'm not happy with what happened. And I understand that sometimes you're going to make decisions that might exclude me. Sometimes I'm not going to agree with those reasons. Sometimes those reasons might be understandable. But I would appreciate it if going forward, if you're going to do that, You own it and be honest about it up front. You look me in the eye and say, hey, we're going to plan a family vacation in a way that does not accommodate the special needs of your family. We are going to prioritize doing it this way. And you guys might end up being left out as a result of that. At least look me in the eye and own it and be upfront and honest about what you're going to do. And don't perpetuate the myth, the illusion, the perception that we're all cool and vacations is something we do together. Mm -hmm. And then I have to find out after the fact like somebody who isn't even part of the family's decision-making process that, oh, you guys chose to prioritize this and I couldn't weigh in on that. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's not only embarrassing to be put in that situation, but it's but it's off-putting. And, and I would at least get that on the record. To John's point, however, part of what's going to make this hurt so much 
is that there is this expectation that vacation is something we do together. And if they're not down with communicating honestly, it might be best to kill the expectation in the eyes of your children and start a new tradition by saying, hey, for family vacations, this is it's going to be us every year. Yeah. It's just going to be us. And we can hang out with the rest of the family for Christmas and all those other things. But for summer vacations or whatever this tradition is, it's going to be us. And then you don't have to deal with what they decide every year and you can just create your own expectations. Yeah. I just yeah. want to highlight how important it is to like clear a list like that on someone because we carry these lists and we don't yep. ever say anything. And then mm. it creates tension when you're around them. So on uh, the men's team that I'm on at the very beginning, one of the questions that's asked is, hey, does anyone have any lists to clear? And the way it works, let's I say that, that yeah, man. it's like it's to clear the space and make sure everyone's present. And everything's good. So what happened, the, the way the um, the format is, is you would say, uh, oh, I have a list to clear on so and so. And if you're in person, you like go up to the man and you're like on his heart, like, hey, man, I have, I have something that I got to get off my chest. And it's uh, it's more of a bonding than it is a, um, you know, putting down or insulting or like, you know, pushing someone away. It's like mm. bringing them closer. But basically, it's like, hey, here's what happened. So it's not like you are this type of person. It's just an observation of what happened. And here's how it made me feel. It made me feel X, Y, and Z. Mm. And uh, I'm I'm willing to let that go. And then after it's after you let it go, then the, you know, the list is cleared and um, you can, you know, carry on as usual and, and kind of get that off your chest. Sometimes you're not ready to let it go and that's okay too. Mm. And if, and if that's the case and you say, I'm not ready to let it go, but I'm willing to like clear the space right now. So we, you know, so we can mm. have a good men's team meeting. So I, yeah, clearing that list is so important, man. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important also to highlight something here. And that highlighting is yes, to let it go, you don't need their apology. They might apologize, but if you're waiting for the apology, if you're waiting for them to make mm. things right, you may never let go if that is your deadline for letting go mm. because it might not ever happen. And it will never feel like you think it's going to feel. <laughs> yeah. It's never going to be enough. You know what's interesting? Anytime I've had to clear a list on someone, I've never even cared about their apology. No. Yeah. It was it, never about them in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Another question here. This one is from Yaman. My name is Yaman. I'm from Royal Oak, Michigan, and I'm a Patreon subscriber as well. For the last seven years or so, I've had this internal feeling of having things that I feel like I can only talk about once my parents pass away because it involves them. I've wrestled with it for a long time and in more ways than one, it has affected and ruined some of my relationships. I'm not quite sure that it makes sense as I'm probably coming off a little vague here, but it feels heavy. And um, for some reason, I still find comfort in the thought that at some point, eventually, I'll be able to speak about it and everything would make sense then. Do you have any thoughts about dealing with the inability to speak about certain things while the people it involves are still alive? Sean, let's see if we can get Yaman on the phone so we can talk. I need some more details here. Hello. Yaman, how you doing, brother? I am well. How are you guys? Doing good, doing man. Great, I got man. Dr. John Deloney here. And um, man, it's a really heartfelt question. Um, there are some things that you are feel like you're unable to talk about, but talk to whom about? And can you give us any more specifics as well? Absolutely. Um, the question really stems from you know, when you're on the journey of like finding yourself you stumble across what I like to call like the truths that kind of bend reality or wake you up to it or reshape your reality. 
And to get, you know, I know the question was kind of generic, but to give you a specific example, for example, it would be trust issues in a relationship, for example. Um, I've struggled with what I have, you know, what I call trust issues that might not make sense to my counterpart, but in finding and tracing the triggers for where that came from, I discovered I'm like, okay, that stems from my environment, how I grew up. Maybe it's something that had to deal with norms and traditions and my family life that tabooed some human feelings in me. And it caused these things. And because it involves some family truths, like I said, or some deep, dark family secrets, I can't just willingly share them with my person because maybe I haven't developed that trust enough in them. So I guess how do I tiptoe? Or I end up tiptoeing really around that. John, if Yaman was calling into your show, what would you tell him? I would tell him two important truths. One is secrets will kill you. Um, There's a physiological cost to secrets. Um, And I think that people have to earn the right to hear those secrets. And so somebody you've just met or somebody you've been dating for six months may not... um, may not have earned access to the deepest, darkest family secrets, but your therapist should. Um, Your friend community that you've been ride or die with for 20 years, they should. And so know that there's a physiological cost. Just like if you came in and I was a medical doctor and said, man, I I can't talk about a workout program until you quit smoking. This is that level of seriousness when it comes to your health. The second thing is, and this is me tough loving you. Is this cool? Can Can I be real direct with you? Go at it, please. At some point, you are choosing to remain attached to that historical stuff. You get to decide what happens moving forward. And it's something that you're going to have to practice because you've never even seen it done. But you have to choose how you're going to move forward, which means I'm going to choose trust. I'm going to choose when I feel my body get uncomfortable because she hasn't texted back in five minutes or he hasn't texted back in the last 30 seconds. I'm going to feel that and I'm going to breathe through it. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to practice trust. This is a new world. But any time you choose to live in the past, you are choosing misery in the present. And you don't deserve that. The people you're with don't deserve that. And more importantly, your family tree that you're building moving forward doesn't deserve that. Yaman, Yaman, do do you have anyone in your life, like uh, like a therapist or someone that you, you have been able to talk to about this? I do not, but that's a different conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, j- just yeah. to, to, to Loney's point, um, it might, it, you know, it might be a good idea to find a therapist, someone that you trust. I know back when I first started seeing a therapist, I started doing it because Tony Soprano did it. I thought, <laughs> I thought he was cool. And I'm like, I'm going to unload all my stuff on someone. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize how much it actually kind of helped me process a lot of things. Cause there were some like things that I hadn't talked about with anyone. Yeah. And um, yeah, just finding someone that, you know, I felt that a like couldn't repeat anything I said. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, under law. legally, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, just just the thought, Yaman. Hey, Yaman, uh, w- one one more clarification question for you. Um, this is what it sounds like to me. Correct me where I might be wrong. Um, it sounds like there are discrepancies in your behavior that someone who is dating you is going to look at as kind of weird, off-putting, or concerning. But if they only understood certain aspects of your story, they'd be able to make better sense of that behavior. They'd be able to empathize a little more. But in order to help them make sense out of that story, you have to throw people under the bus that you would prefer not to throw under the bus. Is that about right? 
That is precisely it. It's the feeling of guilt and, and, and divulging information that involves other people. Yeah. And I feel justified to, you know, in, in my head, I feel justified in having that insecurity or trust issue or whatever the issue may be. But I can't talk about it to the depth that it would make sense to somebody else. So there are two dimensions to this problem then. First, there is how do I deal with the things going on within me that are producing those discrepancies? The second component is how do I date someone that is incapable of making sense out of my discrepancies because I don't want to give them the information necessary to make that sense? That second thing is what's the problem here in this relationship? And it may very well be the case that that's evidence for a certain kind of space that might be beneficial to that relationship. I'm not saying, hey, you can't date anybody until you clear up all of your mess. But I am saying it's not this other person's job to make sense out of you. It's your job to deal with whatever you need to deal with so that you can show up in your relationships in a way that is healthy. And so to put another person in a position where it's like, yo, I'm not going to give you the information you need to make sense out of me. But hey, it's your job to work hard to kind of empathize with me. That that may be an indicator that you're at a place where dedication to your inner work might be of greater priority than trying to get along with someone who doesn't have the resources that they need to be able to love you and support you in the way that you need. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you have to say about that when you hear that? Like, am I like pissing you off or sound like it's way off? Or what do you think? No, it's it's on point. The only thing that I guess I, I would counter with is I feel like I've been stuck in that loop of the self-evaluation. And the more I do it, the more, like I mentioned, I feel justified in having that trust issue. And that's, again, that's just one example. Um, so then I end up, I, I just feel like, in doing that work, I'm just going to continue having to bottle in those feelings. What is that trust issue getting you right now? What is it? What is it protecting you from? Uh, I guess it's just kind of letting your guard down. Like it's it's forcing me to keep my guard up. So I would and, suggest that that trust issue is costing you everything. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's costing you everything. And if it for so long kept you safe and now it's hurting the very things that you deeply desire and it may be time to let it go because it's not serving you as it once did. Yaman, I'll, I'll also just add real quick. There are a lot of things I talk about now. Both of my parents are, are dead, but there are things that I'd still talk about if they were both still here. So... You've probably heard me talk about this like in our last Netflix film. My very first memory as a child is of my father extinguishing a cigarette on my mother's clavicle. And that's something that has obviously stayed with me. But being willing and able to talk about it does a few things. One is it shows people that they aren't alone. They're not the only ones who experience parental abuse in their homes, right? But it also makes it less big of a deal for me even, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it was a big deal. And if I held on to it, I think it would continue to traumatize me. 
but by being willing to talk about it regardless, because you're not trying to offend your parents. You're not trying to piss them off. You're not trying to upset them. You're not trying to anger them. Those might be the outcomes there. I'm sure if my father was still alive and I talked about that publicly, he wouldn't be happy about it. But guess what I'm not happy about? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm going to throw one last thing in here. Uh, Yaman, I I would say, you know, give the other person uh, the option for what kind of relationship they want to be in and and, and for how much they can support you. Um, There may be some possibilities that can open up for the two of you if you say, hey, look, I've got some stuff going on. And some of the challenges that we have, it's not your fault. It's not because you're crazy. Um, It's not because you're saying things that aren't really there. Some of the challenges we have are real and they're due to some stuff that's going on with me. And I don't feel like I'm at a place where I'm ready to talk about it. Um, Can you support me in this journey in trying to figure out how I can get the help that I need to deal with what I'm dealing with? Can you support me in this journey where I'm going to show up in some ways where I might not make sense to you because of this stuff that I'm, I need to wrestle with in my own time. And then that gives them a certain level of awareness for what they're dealing with that doesn't require them to have all the detail and they can make a choice. And not only does that make the relationship healthier if they make that choice, but it also puts them in a position where they can maybe support you in a way that makes the relationship better. They can help you get what you need. Yaman, thank you so much for your question. Love you, brother. Yeah. Love you, man. Thank you. We're going to check in with uh, some of your social media questions here. Charlie from Facebook has something for us. What does an uncluttered mind feel like? Ooh, an, un- an uncluttered mind is untethered from the past and the future. Mm. So where is a cluttered mind? It exists not in the present moment. There's a paradox about this because there is no present moment because as soon as I say present moment, that is now the past, right? Or I'm thinking about something that's going to happen five minutes from now, five days from now, five years from now. That's also taking me out of the present moment. Or I'm thinking about something that happened yesterday. I can't believe I screwed this up. I should have said this differently. Oh, if I would have just answered the job interview question this way, then my life would be perfect now. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking today about psychological clutter, which I think happens at the intersection of of mental clutter and and the sort of emotional clutter. The the head and the heart creates all of this internal clutter that's going on. And Dr. Deloney, you have a lot of experience talking to people on the radio about this sort of anxiety that leads to the cluttered mind, as Charlie uh, illuminates here. What are some of your thoughts on the cluttered mind and what does it feel like? So the word that comes to mind is peace. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me um, a few months ago, I think we've lost context of what that even means anymore. Mm-hmm. And my granddad, a uh, World War II vet, he fought Nazis. And he came um, home, with started a small family And he knew peace was not that, Mm. right? He had a very stark understanding of what peace was and was not. And then we're two or three generations removed now. And peace is, like we were just talking off air, like it's 73 and I want it to be 71 and I'm uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? And we then pathologize feeling not good. And so every not good feeling is something that needs to be solved. You end up in a rabbit hole. So when someone's asked, what does a, 
an uncluttered mind feel like? It feels like peace. It feels like your shoulders are dropped. And it feels like, um, not that everything's perfect. A great example is um, my cousin died a few months ago. And um, man, he had lived a, a, a great life. My wife and I had the, the, the great privilege of going to his funeral, flying there. And we had the privilege of just being sad. Because we had saved up money. We had a special account just for these kind of moments. We had time off from work. We were able to just go be sad. And so mm-hmm. we were at peace, even in a tough time. So an uncluttered mind is one that is just relationally, spiritually, financially, it's at peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the perfect thing is fascinating because we had uh, a gal on, uh, what was her name, Catherine Scheffler? Uh, Catherine Morgan Scheffler. Yeah, she wrote this book on perfectionism mm. and completely changed my idea of what perfect literally means, but also how that is applicable to our everyday lives. So mm. perfect comes from the Latin root per and for, for ser, so completely done. Mm. So something doesn't need to be flawless to be completely done. If I were to die today, my life would have been perfect because then it's completely done. Mm. And so when we often conflate peace with comfort, Mm -hmm. then everything feels imperfect because it's not flawless. And then we moralize everything, right? Good and bad are emotions that exist in the cluttered head of the beholder. Mm. And so when I say, oh, I'm uncomfortable because it's cold. It's 50 degrees and I'm cold and that is a bad thing. We even moralize the weather. (laughs) We can pathologize everything and make it feel as though because it's not to my exact liking, it's not flawless, therefore it must be bad. Mm. When I think about an uncluttered mind, I think about the words of David Allen who says, the mind is for having ideas, not holding ideas. But when we use the mind to hold ideas, we compromise its ability to have them. The mind is there to generate insight and creativity, but we often use it as a receptacle to place our plans and our worries Mm -hmm. and all those sorts of things. And so, you know, you are uncluttered when you are experiencing that generative quality of mind, when your mind is a force for ideas, for creativity, when you can access what's within you and your mind is an asset on the other hand, if your mind is just sort of like, oh man, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about that? And you, and you feel that anxiety, you feel that stress, you're cluttered mm. because you're using your mind to hang on to things, to hold on to things. And it's, it, it's proper function is being overwhelmed by all of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. To, to add to that, TK. So yes, a, a, an uncluttered mind will make you feel more peaceful. But when you feel more peaceful, now you can deal with those uncomfortable feelings mm-hmm. when they arise. So when you have, yes. uh, uh, you know, when you've let go of all of this um, expectations or hopes or uh, disappointments or whatever it is, when you have sadness come up or you have anger come up, like there's space for you to address yeah. that rather than let that emotion uh, run ragged with you. And I think we often ask, like, how do I get there? How do I unclutter my mind? That's very similar to asking, how do I declutter my home? Yeah. Because we all we never start with the the how to. We start with the why to. Mm. We start with the question: How might your life be better with less? Or TK often rephrases it: How might your life be more with less? Mm. And when people hear that, they think less stuff. Okay, that's part of it. But what about less mental clutter? Mm-hmm. Fewer thoughts that are constantly pinballing around my head. 
and telling me I'm inadequate, I'm insufficient, I'm incomplete, well, that is a, a cluttered mind. Yeah. How often do we sit in the shower and have imaginary conversations with people oh that we will gosh. never have in real life? Mm. Right. And we always mm. mic drop all of them. We win all of them. <laughs> yes. We're like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Never going to have that conversation. <laughs> if I saw the president, I'd tell you and tell him <laughs> anything. Right. Mm. And our bodies don't know the difference between a real war and an imagined war. It just goes mm. to war. And so, man, what a different way to live. And if you think about like budgeting your money or looking at your home, the spontaneous combustion we talked about, what if you just pick 30 days and said, I'm only going to think positive thoughts about my spouse and my kids and my coworkers. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to spend my time. And I'll walk through my living room, guys, and my, I'll just say out loud, nope. And my wife just rolls her eyes now because she knows I was starting an imaginary conversation and I'm just stopping it. I'm stopping it. <laughs> And what if we paid as much attention to the thoughts in our head as we do the stuff in our house? Mm. Your whole physiology changes. Everything about your body changes if you can capture your mind, man. Mm. I love that because that's like changing your state right in the moment to help you. It's changing everything. Yeah. Another question here. This one is also from Facebook. Helen has a question for us. There are many people who can't stop checking their emails or talking about work issues when they're off the clock. Mm. What tips would you give somebody who has trouble mentally clocking out of work? Can I stop what you just said? (laughs) (laughs) I call bullcrap on it, man. Sorry to interrupt. (laughs) Like, you can stop. Mm. You're choosing not to. Mm. Yeah. And so this idea that we are this powerless slave to this four inch by three inch metal box is nonsense. It's not true. And as long as we hang on to this narrative that they and the Silicon Valley guys have got us, stop, do whatever it takes, put insane hurdles, throw it off a bridge, smash it, bury it underwater, turn it off, right? Give mm. it to a friend, put a passcode. What have you got to do? But stop with that narrative that I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. That narrative is paralyzing all of us. It's not working. That story's not working. Yeah. We, we went to uh, Malabama's place for game night. It was me and uh, Mariah, uh, Sean, his partner, Adriel, uh, Malabama and, and, and uh, David. And we instantly just started talking about work. And I love what I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for like the first five or 10 minutes, we're talking about it. And I'm like, all right, guys, let's like finish this conversation. Like right here, no more work talk. (laughs) Wow. And and but we had, I mean, we had to like create a boundary because I mean, we weren't complaining or anything. It was just, we're just talking about the office and things Mm -hmm. we do and, you know, things that has come up. And um, yeah, again, none of it was negative, but I was like, I can't do it. Like, no, no more work talk. Interesting. Yeah. I would never even think of that. I mean, what really stood out to me with this question is we often see our own behaviors that we dislike in other people. The way Mm. that Helen phrased the question, there are many people who can't stop checking their emails. (laughs) And I am assuming, Helen, you're one of these many people. But it's so much easier to focus on those people. How dare all these people be on their phone standing in line at Chipotle? And I'm here on my phone at Chipotle, (laughs) right? Because why? Well, it's easy for me to see them. It's hard for me to look in the mirror and see my own deficiencies, my own, well, judgment is just a mirror that reflects my own insecurities. Mm, And so when I say all these people on their phones or all these people checking email or all these people are obsessed with work, my first question would be like, what's the problem with that? Like, Mm. I'm obsessed about my work. Mm -hmm. And 
I can't imagine talking about anything else, to be mm. frank with you. Mm. Like, I, I would pr- prefer just to have silence most of the time. And <laughs> we're in here one or two days a week in the studio. But besides that, most of my days are really, really quiet. Yeah. I, I probably say a hundred times more words on Tuesdays than I do the other seven <laughs> days of the week combined. <laughs> I think for me, it's like I wanted to get to know Malabama and David more. I already know her work life. Mm-hmm. I, I already know about work, you know, and it's the same thing with Sean and Adriel. So I think that's why I was like, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Like it was pretty benign. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it was how much Josh just, it just won't stop talking <laughs> about work. I was like, I hate that his hair is nicer than mine. It drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's tyrannical. Yeah. One, one thing I want to throw in the pot here is that if you refuse to ever work on the way you work outside of work, then you're going to become one of those people who talks about work outside of work all the time. One of the things that that people tend to have in common when they're always talking about their job in this really stressed out manner is that there are elements of toxicity or inefficiency at their jobs and they don't have a healthy, effective way to process that. They don't have any strategies for dealing with that. They're not involved in any kind of game plan that's going to help them get better at handling those types of things. Mm. And so the solution to not being the kind of person who's talking about work all the time in this stressed out way is to set aside a time with boundaries around it. Hey, you know what? Every Sunday night or every Saturday or this 30 minutes in my week, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to actually write down what are the things that are killing me on my job and what are some conversations I can be having, some strategies I can be employing, some skills I can be developing so that when I go back to work, it's a little bit easier. One example I had about this is when I worked at Olive Garden, I made a video about it. I used to go into work stressed out all the time because I would struggle to carry the tray. I would sometimes drop things. And so I literally thought about work all the time and felt anxiety all the time. And there was just this one weekend I was like, enough. Mm -hmm. And I asked my manager if I could take a tray home. He let me take a tray home. And I spent the whole freaking weekend doing nothing more than just stacking dishes on a tray, walking around, trying to balance it. And I, I wasted an entire weekend doing that. But when I went back to work, I was so good at carrying that tray. I never thought about work outside of work ever again. Mm. So work on the way you work outside of work with boundaries and you won't be the kind of person who's always talking about work. Mm. My wow. work brings me pure joy. So I, I, I think that what's fascinating about what, what, what TK is talking about, quite often, yes, when people are talking about work, they can't, it, it's in a way, it's framed as a, almost a complaint or yeah. venting, mm. right? And I'm not saying venting isn't important, But the question is, like, what is the thing that you're obsessed about? That's a great thing to talk about. And it could be anything when you're at that game night. If I am obsessed with my work, there's nothing wrong with it. If I'm complaining about my work, well, that's a problem because that that sort of negativity becomes contagious. I just see that by degrees of confidence. And what you gave yourself in, in your Olive Garden story, like what you gave yourself by going home and practicing this thing was not pseudo confidence like we throw around in our culture now like you go you go tk you can do anything like but i don't know how to do this you went home and practiced and that confidence let your body be at peace oh i know how to do this like i'm not gonna lose sleep over it anymore you're so good at what you do constantly re-engaging it brings you joy ryan's not that good at this <laughs> talking, fair, fair enough I talking can't. about this at a party stresses him out <laughs> no ryan just has other things that i mean i know it's obviously a joke but ryan has other things that interest him and i my interests are very narrow and very deep and i get real obsessive yeah. about things sure. i love talking about philosophy 
Yeah, I yeah. love I love talking about <laughs> um you know new things that I'm learning. So when it comes to like this piece of it that we're doing right here, like yes, you probably could have put a mic in you know on the table when we were having a board game and what would it would have been a podcast. It was really I just remember it being technical stuff mm. about the switchboard, about the the cameras, about some of the comments, about mm. some of the, you know that that stuff where I'm like that stuff doesn't really interest me. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. no offense, but and I I actually probably started the conversation honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it just yeah, it just got to a point where I'm like this is this is just like nitty gritty work stuff that um I would rather set aside right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's that is a great barometer too, where it's like. Is this stressing me out? Is it making me feel anxious to talk about this? Do I have a deep desire that it's so compelling that I just really want to talk about it right now? Or is it just like, I feel like I have to talk about, I have to engage. That's why I don't ever go out to, I've been to two events in the last year and they're both in the last two weeks. They're with me, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and Deloney was at both of them. Uh, The rumors of us dating are not true. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan started the rumors on Twitter. (laughs) Elon Musk's Twitter. That's right. That's right. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Elon's Twitter at The Minimalist. Are we still on there? I know we're not verified anymore. I don't know. There's something about not having the blue check that I love. Uh, Do you... Do you feel less important or more important or just the same? I feel like I'm opting out of the game, Ah, which is nice. The validation is not external. It is internal. Although I hear if you have a blue check, you can edit your tweets. And you get no ads or fewer ads, which is the compelling reason to me. And I cannot tell you how many times I have tweeted something and then Josh responds to it and is like, hey, you misspelled this. (laughs) (laughs) Or how about we both stay employed? Take that down. (laughs) Yeah. I don't care about that. We don't have any advertisers. Exactly. We can't be canceled. (laughs) Who's going to cancel it? Me? (laughs) You can't cancel us. We're canceling us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. During the lightning round, this is where we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We call them minimal maxims. We put these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. We'll let John go last so he can think about his pithy answer. But we have a question here from Yashvi. Aren't you always going to have to compromise something in a relationship for love? If that's the case, wouldn't everyone be single forever? Ooh, let's talk about this. So compromise, before we put any time on the clock for Ryan here, it seems to me that there are different types of compromise when we refer to compromise, right? Mm -hmm. So let's give Ryan some time. Let him unpack this for us. All right. Uh, My pithy answer is this. Love inspires the desire to support, not sacrifice. Mm. So when I, when I read this question, I thought about my wife and I and how I love going out of my way for her. Mm -hmm. Um, She had a uh, women's retreat that she went and did. It was, she had an amazing time. I had a, she uh, was finished on Sunday night. I had a flight on Monday morning. So she didn't think I was going to be there for her, you know, and she was totally okay with that. But I saw it as an opportunity. Like, I know I'm going to lose sleep tonight, but I'm going to go up there and like show her the support that I know that she's really going to appreciate. And to me, that wasn't a compromise. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was an opportunity for me to go up there and really show how much I love her. But like, set that aside. Set set, set aside uh, these relationships. I think about the other day I was on the 405 and it was 
my time's about up. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to stop right there. Un- unless I can get an additional 60 seconds. All right, let's give him another 60 seconds. All right, so I'm on the four or five the other day. <laughs> and it's not, it's not rush hour. It would have been better if it was rush hour because at least traffic moves slowly. It was like lunch rush hour. So a lot of vehicles, but going, Sporadic. Yeah, going very, very fast. And as I'm driving down the highway, um, I see this kitten in the middle of the road. And I'm like, oh my God, this kitten has like gotten hit. And I start to get sad. And as I drive by it, I see it turn its head. And, you know, you can tell it's like meowing. And my heart just like melted. I'm like, oh man, like I, I have to do something for this mm-hmm. kitten. So I like pull over. Um, and there was a perfect little spot. Uh, there was an on-ramp. There's a little median. I get out of my car. I'm like waving like a madman, like, st- you know, stopping people. I think, Jordan, you got a picture of this. You can put it up if you want. Um, but I, uh, yeah, waving like a madman, cars stop. And th- just everything that I compromised in that situation with like my safety, um, not just with the cars, but diseases from this cat, like nothing was going to stop me from like helping this cat out. And um I saved it. I'm a hero. What can, what can I say? TK, <laughs> <laughs> you got something pithy for me. Uh, yes, relationships involve compromise, but compromise doesn't require condescension. Mm-hmm. So I give you my three C's of compromise. One, catering. Two, competing. Three, collaborating. Catering is when you say, well, you don't want what I want. We don't like the same things, but I'm going to cater to you by stooping to the level of your desire. And I'll try to be a saint about it. Let's do what you want to do. Competing is when you say, well, we're going to fight each other to get the other to bend to the will of the other. I want to do what I want to do. You want to do what you want to do, but I'm going to bend you in my direction. And now we're competing for who has the superior game plan. Collaborating is when you say, hey, it looks like my familiar habits don't resonate with your familiar habits. Why don't we work together to come up with some new third thing that we both can delight in. When you collaborate, compromise becomes an expression of co-creativity rather than some form of competition or catering. That's what makes a relationship life-giving. You can compromise without condescending. Mm. Yes, indeed. Mm. Let me, I think I have a different sort of idea about compromise. What Ryan was talking about earlier is he was able to compromise his preferences for more sleep without compromising his values. Mm, And I think that's what's important. And I think that's what the question asker is conflating here. You don't have to compromise your values in order to love someone. Love does not require compromise. It does not require commitment. It does not require covenant. It requires awareness for the other person. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to force them to change, without manipulating them, without persuading them, without convincing them that I know better than you. I've got this video real quick I want to play from Anthony DeMello that I thought would fill us in here and better answer this question than I'm capable of doing. Love is like listening to a symphony. Life is a symphony, and to love means to be sensitive to the whole of that symphony. It means to have a sensitive heart to everyone and to everything. You don't have to compromise your values to have a sensitive heart Mm. to see someone else. Yes, if you're in a relationship with anyone, there are times where it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm. And it might be your preference to be filled with comfort all the time. 
you might have to compromise some of your preferences without compromising who you are as a person. Mm. John, any insights? I think I may contradict all of y'all. Is that okay? Yeah. (gasps) Please. Even even better. We insist. (laughs) When I choose love, I'm choosing to take a knee before this other person and say, I give you my all. And my hope is, as we talked about earlier, my hope is you will reciprocate that. But when I love, I don't have to. I get to. When I love, I'm saying, I'm f- I, I, I am putting all I am before you and you now come first. And when two people do that together in a romantic relationship and they both race to the bottom of how can I love you? How can I love you? How can I love you? Then questions like that were asked they, they become but a mist. Like they, they don't exist. There's no more like, well, I want to watch that movie. I want to watch the movie that's going to bring you the most joy. And like, if you're with Ryan, that's Fast and the Furious 7. And that's just what's, what he's into. <laughs> he's more right? of a Tokyo Drift guy. <laughs> hey, we're not friends. We're family. <laughs> we're family. That's right. Right. But, but it's, it's, it's an ethos. And does it always work perfect? No. And there's, there are times you end up at family vacations. Of course. Um, but I, I just think it's a, I think feelings, all that stuff is distant nonsense to, yeah. I submit. That's exactly 280 characters. We're good. It's amazing. Well, you know, when those feelings come up, like, you know, if Mariah wanted to watch a movie and I'm like, I don't want to watch that movie. Why do we always got to watch what you like? That is a, that is, I mean, I know that's how you and your wife kind of exactly communicate. Yeah. We are. But, um, but, uh, you know, it's a sign of something deeper. Like there's always. a, there is a deeper issue going on. If you're feeling resentment towards something like, a movie preference. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably some underlying thing that you might want to dig into a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And I think it's important to call out what you mentioned about values, because there is going to be those moments. I want our kid to go to this school. I want our kid to go to this school and love just taking, taking a knee doesn't solve that issue. Right. right. And so you got to go back to your values. The ones you all agreed on and what you said, TK, you got to build something new because you're building it together. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're going to check on with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. This is exciting because we are one week away from our first ever decluttering course. We've been working on this since last year. It's called Simplify Everything. Hopefully we'll get... Dr. John, you want to be to, your first to, person to tweet about it. Uh, <laughs> Heck yeah, man. Here's, here's the fascinating thing about this. We have resisted doing some sort of course for a long time because we know how much work goes into it. I teach a writing class mm-hmm. online and I know precisely how much effort you have to put in to create something that's meaningful that mm-hmm. will bring immense value to people's lives. And so it, it's these five different areas of clutter. So it's five weeks long. And we, each week, we help declutter one form of clutter. It starts with the physical clutter because we're the minimalist and people often associate material possessions with clutter. There's so many other kinds of clutter that we unpack throughout the course. So the second week, we walk you through digital clutter, the glowing screens on your walls or in your pockets or in your bag, a lot of digital clutter in our lives. And then from there, we go to calendar clutter. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so bit. That's just another way to say my life is out of control. When I say I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. Well, how do we get around that? We declutter the calendar clutter. Mm-hmm. And from there, we talk about financial clutter. We talk a lot about the uh, 
the yeah mm-hmm. the 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 baby steps and things like that. that You're people like can taking go chapter six of my new book, man. Congratulations! <laughs> like literally, this is it right here, man. <laughs> but in the last wow. one, the imitation la- is the best form of flattery. Flattery. Wow. So. <laughs> Leaked copy somehow. <laughs> the the last week we go through relationship clutter, the sort of toxic relationships we have in our lives, or just some of the relationships that we are holding on to because of convenience or proximity that we might need to let go of. And so it's five weeks long. It's 17 video lessons. Each video lesson, I think, has 14 different segments in it. 45 clutter problem areas, 135 decluttering solutions, a 30-page workbook, student forums, and much, much more of less. I'm so proud of us, gentlemen. <laughs> like, looking at the videos, uh, we're going through the editing process right now, and we really have provided something amazing. And, Ryan uh, called me yesterday. He it. goes, I can't believe how great I was in these videos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you stole so the true. show. Week one, especially. He was, I mean, just so on point. It was 57 points, yeah, game-winning shot. <laughs> it was, it was, it was unbelievable. If you're interested, uh, simplifyeverything.xyz <laughs> is the website. Simplifyeverything.xyz. And this course opens for 72 hours only on May 29th. But to go to simplifyeverything.xyz right now, put your email address in there. We'll let you know as soon as the course, the enrollment opens up. Alabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? I have a comment here from Violet, she says, I think the Japanese author Dr. John Deloney was talking about earlier is Fumio Sasaki, who wrote Goodbye Things. Excellent book. Excellent. Yeah, Goodbye Things, which is uh, a book that we quoted from in our last book, Love People Use Things. And because the, the idea is it's also, it's not just about like renouncing the things. It's almost honoring the things Mm -hmm. by saying goodbye to them, recognizing that either you served a purpose You added some sort of value, or maybe I thought you were going to, but you're no longer doing what I thought you would do. So, goodbye. Mm. We're going to check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a bit. But first, Matt LeBam, what what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hello, this is Bryce from Delray Beach, Florida. I wanted to share a tip that I came up with to live a more balanced and intentional life. What I did was I have a planner that instead of going by the hour, it goes by the different realms of health. And it made this really cool acronym that's easy to remember and easy to apply. And that's special. Every day is special and every day is an opportunity to grow spiritually, physically, emotionally, communally, intellectually, adaptively, and lucratively. This is Chelsea from Camas, Washington. And I would like to read an excerpt from one of my favorite books, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, which I often think about when I struggle with identity clutter. Here it is. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living, easy to wish we developed other talents, said yes to different offers, easy to wish we'd worked harder, loved better, handled our finances more astutely, been more popular, stayed in the band, gone to Australia, said yes to the coffee or done more bloody yoga. It takes no effort to miss the friends we didn't make and the work we didn't do and the people we didn't marry and the children we didn't have. It is not difficult to see yourself through the lens of other people and to wish you were all the different kaleidoscopic versions of you they wanted you to be. 
It is easy to regret and keep regretting ad infinitum until our time runs out. But it is not lives we regret not living that are the real problem. It is the regret itself. It's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. We can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. Those lives are happening, it is true. But you are happening as well. And that is the happening we have to focus on. Welcome back, y'all, for our Talk Aboutables segment today. Finally, finally, a piece of clothing that has a message on it that I can completely agree with. Oh, I still wouldn't wear any logos on my clothing, but I can get down with this message. This is a hooded sweatshirt. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, you'll see this, but I'll read it to you if you're just listening to the audio. The back of this sweatshirt says, stop trying to be liked by everyone. You don't even like everyone. Mm. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Because like, we don't like everyone, but we want everyone to like us. How fascinating is that, That is wild, man. And so what do we do? We buy things to impress people that we don't know or we don't like, or some people we may never like. And we use money we don't have to buy the things we don't even want ourselves. We certainly don't need them, but I really want you to like me. Yeah. And I'll only be happy if you like me. Oh, you like me. Now I need you to like me. Oh, you like me. That's great. But I need you to like me. And as soon as one person doesn't like me, what do I do? I don't say, oh, I'm so thankful for all the people that like me. Yeah. Oh, I'm Mm. so miserable because that one person that I'm fixated on doesn't like me. And Mm. that's the tricky thing about selling your soul. It's easy to go with the Hollywood stereotype of thinking that selling your soul is all about the money. You're more likely to sell your soul for the risk-free life of not being criticized by a complete stranger. Mm -hmm. We sell our souls in the form of what we don't say, what we don't do, what we pretend to believe because we don't want people to dislike us. Nothing Mm. to do with money. But where's your soul? Mm. So how many did you buy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I bought one for everyone here because I really want you to like me. (laughs) No, You know, it's interesting. Like, I still want everyone to like me because I... I, maybe that's just ingrained in me for whatever reason. But when someone doesn't like me, um, I don't get too upset about it because uh, I really like myself. Mm. And that is how I've been able to get over that need to be liked by everyone. Well, that's the judgment is a mirror because what you're saying is I'm worthy of being liked. I'm worthy of love. Even mm. if you don't give it to me, I am worthy. But yeah. I don't need it in order for me to be fulfilled. Absolutely. Yeah. For our sucky ad segment, I'm going to skip it this week, but I want to talk about two things really quickly. The reason I'm skipping it is one of our listeners, Alyssa, she sent in an email and she said, you've got to listen to Jordan Harbinger's cringy, I think it was Pepsi Zero ad or something. And so I'm actually going to save it for when next time we bring him back onto the podcast so I can call out his cringy ad in front of his face instead of talking about him uh, just on the podcast Mm because he's a friend of ours, but I'm still willing to criticize him in person. Although I will say this. Not all ads are created equal. Some to me are just gross or disgusting or boring. Mm -hmm. Others, however are just like, eh, I'd rather they not be around. But for episode 400, which is not too far around the corner, 
I finally found an ad. I didn't look for it. It just showed up one day. I finally found an ad that not only I liked, but I appreciated it. Mm. And it was a really weird out-of-body experience for me because you know how I feel about advertisements. But I found one. So stay tuned. Episode 400, which I think is maybe eight episodes from now. I have an advertisement that fell into my lap that I actually enjoyed. Is it a LeBron James ad? (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Definitely not. Because I'm not going to play Angel's Advocate with that one. (laughs) No, I I will tell you that LeBron James' ads for Ruffles are awful. (laughs) And it's so beneath him. Being either the greatest or one of the greatest athletes of all time. Mm. And then, oh, I try the Flaming Hot Poison. No, thank you. Mm, sounds delicious. You're a billionaire. <laughs> you don't need to convince me to eat poison. I'd be fine without it, and you'd be fine without it as well. Dude, I didn't even start liking LeBron until the commercials. He is so lovable in his commercials. <laughs> I'm serious. When I start watching LeBron in commercials, I'm like, oh, this guy's really funny. How'd you feel about Michael Jordan's Haynes commercials, though? Loved it. I wear Haynes to this day. Oh, oh <laughs> Do you eat McDonald's, too? <laughs> Bleep that out. Bleep out that brand. Ooh. All right, let's uh, move on to the Minimalist Home Tour this week. This is number 37 in our series. Malabama, did you give this one a title? I sure did. With the help of Professor Sean, we ended up titling it Dream Shadows. Oh, I love that as one word as well, Dream Shadows. This is from one of our Patreon subscribers, Chelsea. Has a beautiful room here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this shows a few things. One is light can produce art. The objects we have in a room, the plant can produce art. What did she say in her email to us, Malabama? That was exactly the intent. Chelsea said, instead of excessive clutter on the walls, I prefer using floor spotlights from Home Depot to cast shadows on my walls and ceilings. My favorite part about this decorating technique is that I can change the size and shape of the shadows just by repositioning the lights. I found that is true with natural light as well. When I go to Ryan's place and he has several plants there, depending on what time of day it is, there's different art on the walls because the shadows sort of cascade one way when it's going through the slats in the evening. If it's during the day, it might be softer light. And so light helps create art. I think something else you see here is you don't have some stark, sterile room here. What is a minimalist room? Well, it can be something like my house, which is fairly stark, Mm -hmm. or it can be something like this, which is just devoid of clutter. I think the Venn diagram between this and and my home when we do previous home tours is there's no excess in the space. However, this would be excess to me in my home, but for Chelsea, this is just right. And for someone else, it might not be enough. Hmm. Mm. You know what I love about uh, this room the most? It's the art on the wall. And the, I've just never seen art done like that. I love the big, medium, small piece of uh, pieces of art in the way that they're arranged. Like that's really, really awesome. And the shadows is really, really awesome too. Like two things I've never even thought about uh, art wise. And yeah, great work. And that's what gives you a sense of there being no excess. You take that art off the wall and put it on top of the bed. It looks like it's just too much, right? Mm-hmm. It's not mm. just about the number of things, but also how you use them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And also how those things sort of, 
those are intentional art and it cascades into the art that is originally, I thought it was natural light, but it sounds like she's using her own lighting to create those shadows on the wall. So it is an actual creative process here. You're iterating your room in a way that is constantly refreshing the art with light, yeah. which reminds me of something that you know, James Terrell does. His art is is all light-based. I got the opportunity to see his exhibit at LACMA a few years ago. And you walk in and you are completely subsumed by different light. And it almost feels like I'm on a different planet. It feels like an out-of-body experience. But if you didn't have the lights on in that room, it would just be a room. Mm. But the light is what creates the art, enhances the art. For our more about less segment today, I got an article from Kapil Gupta. This is one from the archives. And I love, he tricks us because the title of this is How to Make Tomorrow the Most Joyous Day You've Had in the Last 25 Years. And of course, Appeal doesn't give prescriptions, but there's an observation in this. Often when we talk about how-tos, Ryan and I will even say, how might your life be better with less? That sounds like a Mm how-to. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, it's actually a why. And so let's get to the why here with Kapil. He says, whether you are reading this at night, the morning, or in the middle of the day, take it as a 24-hour cycle from the time you begin reading it. This discourse will tell you the way to make the next 24 hours the most joyous in the last 25 years. If you're under 25 years of age, pick a number, but make it double digits. And if you're too young to do even that, then you're a child and you haven't as yet walked the dense and dark cloud of adulthood. So go back to your ice cream cone before it melts. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually really good advice. It is. Enjoy your ice cream cone while you can. I just think this is a good diss line. (laughs) (laughs) All right, child, enjoy your ice cream. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, everyone has always told you that change takes time, that things happen slowly, that you must keep working at it, and one day it will come. I'm telling you to forget all that. I'm telling you that if you sincerely do what is in this discourse, the next 24 hours will be the most joyous hours you've had in a very long time. Are you ready? Here we go. For the next 24 hours, you must convince yourself that nothing you own is yours. Just pause on that for a moment. Not where I thought it was going to go. Nothing you own is yours. Hmm. If you walk into your living room and you see the couch, I can use it. I have access to it. But is it mine? What does it even mean Hmm. to be mine? What does it mean to possess something? To have control over something? To have dominion over it? Now, what he's not saying here is get rid of your things. Stop accessing your things. No, I just don't own it. Ryan, you and I have stay, stayed at a lot of Airbnbs. I remember 2014, I didn't own a couch. And then you and I stayed in a bunch of Airbnbs. I finally got home after tour and said, I really miss having a couch because we stayed with a lot of other people's couches. Yeah. And I didn't own any of them. I never felt like I owned them, but I did have access to them. Return to text. The house that you were living in 
belongs to someone else. The clothes that you are wearing were borrowed from someone else. Your spouse is someone you are meeting for the first time. Your children are being introduced to you for the first time. The job that you are going to is not you, yours. You are fulfilling. You are filling in for someone else. You have no name. You have no history. You have no biography. If someone calls you by your name, feel as if this name is foreign to you. You can go ahead and respond to the person. After all, why create an unnecessary drama? During the next 24 hours, you have zero ambitions. Mm. That's the one that's most difficult for me. Because what is he talking about here? He's talking about letting go without letting go. Yeah, Letting go of your couch, it's not mine. I can still use it, but it's not mine. I'm letting go. I'm letting go of my ambitions. He says, you have no desires. If something needs to be done, you do it. If someone calls you, you respond. If someone asks you a question, you answer it. But as you answer their questions, stick to the facts. Do not infuse it with your own personality or opinion because you have no personality. You have no opinion. During the next 24 hours, you cannot like anything. During the next 24 hours, you cannot dislike anything. If someone cuts you off as you're driving to work, you're not only forbidden from reacting to it, you're even forbidden from disliking it. If you have a business meeting, sit in your chair and listen to the sounds coming out of other people's mouths. If something within you feels the instinctual need to respond, then respond. But nowhere in this response can there be even a tinge or a shadow or a stain of your own personality. <clears throat> Remember, no likes, no dislikes. You are forbidden to take any kind of emotional stance. Your opinions are forbidden. Your preferences are forbidden. Your habits are forbidden. Your mannerisms are forbidden. For the next 24 hours, you are basically a man on rent. For the next 24 hours, you are a shell of a human being. Every word that comes out of your mouth must be measured and articulated as if it were a finely crafted piece of music. In fact, you must feel your vocal cords create the word and feel the word rise up your throat. You are not allowed to react, for reaction comes from emotion. And for the next 24 hours, you are emotionless. You must see every single thing in your life as if it were the first time you were seeing it. When the, when the 24 hours are complete, uh, he said, send me an email. I don't think you can even email him anymore, but... Uh, this is a really old article. But here's what's fascinating about this is when I go through an experiment like this, it's impossible for me to let go of all those things within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But that is the richness of the experiment. I didn't realize I was holding on to my reaction so yeah. dearly. I was clinging tightly to my opinion, to the way things should be. I was clinging to responding just because I have to respond if someone says something. Even if it's not a question, I must say something. This is my couch. This is my spouse. This is my house. This is my car. This is my shirt. 
This is me who I am. All of these accoutrements make up my identity. Mm. No wonder I cling to it so much. And so an exercise like this isn't forcing you to let go of anyone or anything, but it makes us start to question what I'm holding dear and what I'm clinging to. Yeah. Mm. You make me think about the test-taking mindset where you do an exercise for the purpose of proving how good you are or how competent you are. And something like this, as with most spiritual practices or psychonautic explorations, they don't work very well if you apply the test-taking mindset because very few people get a, uh, an F on a test and go, oh, that's cool. I, I get to see where I'm at. <laughs> I've learned something. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, no, I'm going to be punished. I'm not going to be able to advance to the next round or whatever it may be. But you, you got to look at this stuff as a kind of mirror. It's going to help me see where I am. It makes me think about uh, the, the concept of E-prime, which wasn't invented by Robert Anton Wilson, but he popularized it. It's the elimination of all forms of to be from your speech. And so instead of saying that is a good article, you would say, I like that article. Instead of saying this is a fun conversation, you would say, I'm enjoying this conversation. And, and it helps you put yourself, the subjectivity back into the conversation and it, and it helps you see just how much your conversation is dominated by claims about reality when in reality, most of these claims are just reflections of ourselves. We speak about the song as if it's good, the joke as if it's funny, when it's really, I'm laughing. I like that song. I like that joke. And when you try it, you don't succeed because it's incredibly hard, but you get mm -hmm. to see where you are and you go, oh, yeah, there's some room for me to play around with other ways of being. And this was very helpful in helping me discern that. Yeah, success isn't yeah. the point of this. Failure is the point. So you can illustrate. It's almost like failure becomes the highlighter. So Ryan, if, if you were to embark on this exercise for the next 24 hours, what kind of emotions do you think you would you would experience? Yeah. Trying to be emotionless, I think, would actually create more emotions in a way. <laughs> well, it's interesting. When you were reading that article, you had mentioned uh, like responding to something, um, you know, ownership over something. And what I realized is that we respond, we feel ownership because there is a sense of responsibility that we pick up when we say this thing is mine. And that is what was kind of appealing to me is it would free me from the responsibility. Like I was thinking while you were reading that, I'm like, how nice would it be to know nothing? Like, and I just, I, I can't respond because I don't have any information. I can just walk through life and, uh, you know, walk around carefree, not feeling like I have to correct someone, not feeling like I have to give advice or give an observation. Um, because, I mean, I do love doing that. Obviously, that's what I do. However, um, there is a um, there there is a burden with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's a burden that I've picked up, but there is a burden with it. Yeah, the, the burden of self-righteousness, we don't even realize it until we do something like this and, and realize that most of my reactions are to prove how right I am, how smart I am, how competent I am, or yeah. at least how adequate I am. Yeah, I'm worthy of being in this discussion. Mm. I'm worthy of your attention. I'm worthy of your love, mm. right? And I think what an exercise like this exposes through repeated failures, it's like when you meditate, this, the point is not to clear your head of all thoughts. Good luck with that. Right. It's to witness them. And that's what we're talking about here. This is a meditation of sorts. You're witnessing how often these reactions show up. And I love what you said, Ryan. 
because when you realize how many responsibilities you've picked up and you didn't even know you had those mm. responsibilities. Yeah, that's right, man. It's to, to, maybe, to maybe take it even deeper, the goal is neither success nor failure, but awareness. Mm. And, 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 and that's exactly what you described, the, the, the realization of these things that I'm taking responsibility for, what happens in that space of open awareness. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is an old article. It doesn't even exist on his website anymore. So just, I can't link to it other than uh, it's on web or archive.org or whatever. But, um, you know, it's something worth thinking about. And if anyone listening to this tries it out, I'd love to hear more about your experience with it. Even if you try it for an hour mm. and you let go, I don't own anything. My spouse is not my spouse. You go through the whole exercise we just went through. You can rewind it. What did you experience? And did it help you understand some of the things you might want to let go of? Yeah. Patrons, if, if this is making anything come up for you, let us know in the comments. I want to hear, hear what thoughts come up for you. For sure. And let me know what y'all think of this minimalism movie idea. Uh, Josh, <laughs> Josh becomes an old man and, and we're all sitting down talking together before he dies because he, he goes first. And he's like, Man, you guys remember all those great moments with Kapil? And we're both like, Kapil, who's that? We never heard of any Kapil. <laughs> and, and then a la Fight Club, Josh realizes that the whole time he was Kapil. Kapil. <laughs> and it was just his higher self feeding him all of these thoughts. There was oh. never any guy named Kapil and nobody ever remembers any articles about him. <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's I always good. figured Ryan was my Tyler Durden. <laughs> <laughs> The pill club. In a world where you've <laughs> let go of everything. <laughs> I got some added value for you this week. Two things. The song you hear playing in the background right now is by one of my favorite bands. Their name is Daughter. And I've listened to their music, especially when I'm in a mood to feel sad and angsty. But this isn't that. It, feels, it seems like they've transcended that in a way. This song from the new album, the new album's called Stereo Mind Game. Isn't that what we're talking about today? The mind games that we play and they feel like they're in stereo, creating that psychological clutter. Mm -hmm. This song is called Be On Your Way. And then I had one other thing. You know, I often talk about the sleep mask that I use on this podcast mm -hmm. all the time. Well, I had to replace it recently because it was fraying real bad. It just was old after years and years of use. Mm -hmm. And they were out of stock on the one that I usually would purchase. And so I needed a new one. So I said, I'm going to try a different one, right? Mm -hmm. And I know I'm going to be disappointed, but I wasn't. The one that I'm using now, I enjoy even more than the previous one. And so it's very similar to the other one, but it's cotton. It's not the same satin. And it doesn't leave the blue residue on my pillow. <laughs> And it's slightly more comfortable than the other eye mask I use at night. And so I replaced my old one and then I bought another one as well because I love keeping one in my travel bag because I often forget to pack it. It's like the one thing that I just don't remember to pack because it's there in my side table. Mm -hmm. And so if you're having trouble sleeping and you're looking for a sleep mask, I'll put a link to the new sleep mask I'm using. And Jordan will even put a picture of it here on the screen if you're watching the video version of the podcast. But sleeping with a sleep mask for me has been the thing that has totally transformed. There are several things, but it's one of the five ingredients Absolutely. that has really helped my sleep. I know, Ryan, you use one every night. Dude, 
Dude, I know I'm old because I'm so excited to <laughs> try out a better sleep mask. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, Kristen uh, from Minima, she was on our podcast a few weeks ago and um, she tweeted this meme or she shared it on her Instagram. It was a meme of like, when you're 20 years old, ah, oh, it's fine, I'll just sleep on the floor. And it's like 25, oh, I'll sleep. Uh, it's all right, I'll sleep on the couch tonight. If you got a cou- pull-out couch, I'm good to go. Yeah. By age 30, it's like, yeah, I just need to get a good night's sleep. By age 35, it's like, well, as long as I have a sleep mask and blackout curtains and earplugs <laughs> and a correct bedtime, I can guarantee I'll get at least three hours of mediocre sleep. So true. And as we get older, what I found is, yes, it becomes more difficult. I mean, the, the best thing I've ever done for my sleep is sleeping on a grounding mat. Mm. One of the, the biggest regrets that I've ever had in the last year for me is I didn't do it sooner for Ella because she's nine years old. Why do, she, why do I have to buy a grounding mat for her? But I got one, a, a grounding bed pad from earthing.com, not a sponsor. Mm-hmm. But they um, when they sent it out and uh, they got the sheets for her as well, she tends to sleep pretty well, nine, 10, sometimes 11 hours a night. But in the morning, she's been waking up more and more frequently mm-hmm. early in the morning, five, six, seven. She's having trouble getting back to sleep. And so we got this grounding mat and the grounding sheets for her. And (laughs) the first night, she slept 14 hours straight, did not wake up once. Are you sure that wasn't the Ambien that you uh, slipped her? (laughs) (laughs) It's like Ambien that you lay on. (laughs) That's incredible. It's way better. And then the second night, I was like, oh, this must be a fluke. You know, I'm not going to chalk it up to anything yet. Second night, 13 and a half hours again. Wow. Wow. She missed the school bus to her unschool, so we had to take her there. But anyway, the point was like, wow, even someone who sleeps well radically improved her sleep. And she doesn't know anything about placebo, right? Yeah. And, hey, we're just changing your sheets out. She doesn't know anything about it, right? Yeah. But even uh, so that and a sleep mask, those two things have helped me out immensely with my own sleep. She walks around barefoot all the time, too. Yeah, she grounds all the time. And she's in the sun all day. Her unschool spends time outdoors. So, but this was like the the last 2% that made a huge difference for her. That's earthing.com for the new sleep mask. I'll just put a link in the show notes. Enjoy this song from Daughter. This is Be On Your Way. All right, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, and Alabama, big thanks to our podcast guest today, Dr. John Deloney. We'll put a link to his YouTube channel, his show, The Dr. John Deloney Show, in the show notes. You can listen if you have questions about mental health or anxiety. He is an expert on both of those topics. Also, on behalf of our good friends, podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter. Oh, and Amy Unknown is here as a special guest today and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.
On your way, be on your way. 